everyone, an interview series featuring dissenting voices, the establishment with rather silence. I'm your host, Manar Adley, founder and editor-in-chief of Mint Press News. This week, we launched our one of 100 Patreon membership campaign. So we're calling on 100 citizen activists to join us to sustain projects like this podcast that challenge the status quo. So I hope that you'll join us today. I'm going to link our campaign in the descriptions um, and the comments. So today we're going to be talking about something that has been completely distorted within corporate mainstream media. It's been two years now since the assassination of Iranian statesman, General Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani was assassinated in a US drone strike near Baghdad airport in Iraq. Contrary to what the US government claimed at the time, Soleimani was not plotting to attack American troops, but was actually invited to the country for regional peace talks by the Iraqi prime minister. Now, Soleimani's death sparked a massive wave of anti-American protests across the region, as well as hundreds of thousands of people across Iraq and millions in Iran showed up uh, to his funeral procession that spanned many cities across both countries. So here to discuss Soleimani, his legacy, and U.S.-Iran relations in general, and also Israel's role in this assassination, is Sayyid Mohammed Morandi. Dr. Morandi is a professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. He's currently in Vienna, where he's attending the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, known commonly as the Iran Nuclear Deal Negotiations. Thank you so much, Doctor, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So before we get into uh, Soleimani, I just would like to go over some of the uh, headlines that we saw within mainstream media from the year 2015 and 2014, uh, when the United States was very active in its, you know, in its war, in the dirty war in Syria. And it seemed at that time, the media had portrayed Soleimani in a completely different light. Uh, in fact, it was a celebratory light in the way that they uh, described him. And so I'm gonna go over some of these headlines before we go into his legacy. So we have our first headline uh, from the Financial Times where this headline read, uh, Iranian general is new hero in the battle against ISIS. The next headline we have is from The Guardian where it states, Qasem Soleimani, can this man bring about the downfall of ISIS? The third headline is from Reuters. Uh, Iran's military mastermind, only Iran, is confronting ISIS. The Science Christian Monitor has a headline, Who's the general leading Iraq's fight against ISIS? An Iranian. Another headline from NBC News, Iran's Qasem Soleimani is guiding Iraqi forces in fight against ISIS. But then we saw a complete shift in the way that Qasem Soleimani was described ahead of his assassination and right after. Um, NBC again, America just took out the world's number one bad guy uh, from the Washington Examiner. Bigger than bin Laden, Iran expert hails Qasem Soleimani's killing as massive blow to the regime. We've got Fox News. Christian Witten says Trump's right to order killing of Iranian General Soleimani. This will make America, Americans safer. 
Then we have uh, this Vox article from another neoliberal uh, so-called progressive outlet, the case for killing Qasim Soleimani. And I could just go on and on and on with these headlines. Um, his assassination was called upon by the Trump administration. It was um, a, a violation of international law. Uh, Dr. Marandi, can you tell us about why this shift happened in the way that he was described? And what is his true legacy in the fight against terrorism? First, I'd like to say that I would definitely like to donate to your organization. But since we are sanctioned and I don't have any bank account outside of Iran, it's impossible for me to do so. Thank you so but, much. But uh, you have my full support for whatever that's worth. I appreciate um, it. Thank you so much. I, I think it's pretty obvious that the United States has always had a great deal of hostility towards Iran. And the hostility has been irrational and very much founded upon the U.S.-Israeli relationship always. And uh, therefore, the U.S. views towards Iran and Western views towards Iran are very much influenced by these, these factors. In fact, uh, one thing that I would argue is that when the United States wanted to invade Iraq, you had we all saw that there was a strong anti-war movement in Europe and the United States. But uh, the left, when it came to Syria, in Europe and the United States was much more ambivalent uh, about the, the role of the United States and the role of NATO countries. And that was, I would argue, because of Syria's relationship with Iran. In other words, the hostility towards Iran is so overwhelming in, in Western countries that left, right, center, uh, their, their views of Iran are, are deeply, uh, I would argue, uh, influenced by an irrational hatred, and uh, they tend to believe propaganda, anti-Iranian propaganda, quite easily. And therefore, this caricature of Iran that has always existed for over four decades has, uh, has always had a huge impact. Whereas uh, the left in, in many countries, in, 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 in non-Western countries, has always had a very good relationship with Iran, whether in Venezuela or Cuba or Nicaragua or the ANC in South Africa during the resistance against apartheid and, and elsewhere. So the view of Iran has always been extremely negative. And uh, therefore, it's very easy to sway Western public opinion against Iran uh, whenever there is a need to do so. When the dirty war in Syria began in 2011, the Iranians weren't involved. In, in fact, the Iranians were uh, advising the Syrian government to be careful, not to let civilians be killed. Uh, not uh, to you know they were uh, they were pushing for uh, the government the government to be. Uh, to listen as much as possible to the dissenting voices. But the Iranians also immediately recognized that there was a dirty war beginning against the country. And the Syrian government said so as well. In fact, uh, there early on, there was a, an Arab League de delegation of 300 people who went to Syria. And, uh, and 
this delegation was led by a Sudanese general who was the former ambassador, uh, Sudanese ambassador to Qatar of all countries. So they went to Syria and they, despite being heavily influenced by anti-Syrian or under a lot of pressure from anti-Syrian forces uh, in the Arab League, uh, they actually wrote that there was a third force in Syria that was shooting both at the protesters and at government forces, something that the Syrian government was saying all along. And as a result of this, this Arab League uh, observer mission was disbanded, and you would have a very tough time finding their statement online. So the Iranians knew from the very beginning, Iranian intelligence knew that al-Qaeda was active in Syria and that it was being supported by external forces, Turkish intelligence, uh, Israeli intelligence, um, the southern borders, and there were also uh, extremists coming in from Lebanon. At that time, Western media was calling this a conspiracy theory. But later on, as you know, uh, it came out thanks to Julian Assange, the political prisoner in London, uh, and WikiLeaks, that the United States knew all along that al-Qaeda was active in Syria, and the United States uh, current uh, National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, in an email to Hillary Clinton in, on February the 12th, 2012, very early on, uh, before the heavy fighting, in that email, he said in Syria, al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda is on our side. Mm. So later on, this all begins to come out. But back then, the Western media, even though they knew the truth, because many of them had reporters based in Turkey, and they knew what was going on between Turkish intelligence and al-Qaeda and ISIS, and we know that ISIS came out of al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda. And so, for example, we also know from the national, uh, from the um, from the 2012 uh, statement from um, the national, the U.S. National Intelligence Agency, uh, that uh, the that U.S. allies in the region were hellbent on creating a Salafist entity between Iraq and Syria. And the head of that agency, Michael Flynn, uh, later on admitted in an interview on Al Jazeera of all places that the United States supported its allies in creating that Salafist entity. What was that Salafist entity? It was ISIS. And ISIS, of course, came out of Al-Qaeda when they broke away from Al-Qaeda. So I, I could go on. But the point that I'm trying to make is that initially Iran wasn't involved. And the Iranians were playing an advisory role. But then gradually we saw thousands upon thousands of foreign fighters coming into Syria. When by the time that tens of thousands of foreign fighters had come in with the help of Western and uh, regional intelligence agencies, whether it was in the Persian Gulf or NATO countries, all of them together brought in tens of thousands of foreign fighters. At that time, the Iranians began to get involved because they felt that Damascus was about to fall. And if black flags were uh, going to fly over Damascus, that would be a catastrophe beyond belief. So Hezbollah 
and Iran began involved to get involved in 2013. And of course, the Western media back then was was calling these ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Jaysh al-Islam and Ahrar al-Sham and all these different extremist Wahhabi terrorist organizations, freedom fighters. They were described as moderate rebels at the time. Absolutely. They were moderate rebels and they were the good guys. Mm-hmm. Gradually, though, this menace became so obvious and clear to everyone. And it was it was sort of getting out of control that the narrative began to change. So when the Iranians stepped in and General Soleiman was at the forefront of this resistance against uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, uh, the Western media was hammering Iran for, for supporting a dictatorship and for to killing Syrian children and, and that sort of nonsense. But whereas the truth was that their governments were the ones who had created this dirty war and who had destroyed so much of Syria. And, and, and let me tell you something, another uh, caricature of Iran is that Iran is this despotic regime where there's no freedom. There is a very pro-Western media in Iran that mimics everything that the Western media says about the region and Iran. So you have these newspapers in Iran, which are now online media outlets that are very influential in the country. And they basically reflect everything that the West says. Back then, these media outlets in Iran were saying that these are freedom fighters and that the Iranians are supporting a dictator. The very same narrative that you see come out of the White House and uh, Fox News and the New York Times, when it comes to Iran, they're, they're pretty similar. Uh, that same narrative is rehashed in Iran by these media outlets. So later on, when general when when ISIS entered Iraq, suddenly, just like the Western media shifted their narrative on General Soleimani, these people in Iran, they shifted their narrative as well. It's a very interesting story, but I don't want to get into that. I just want your viewers to understand that the narrative on Iran is very different from what they hear, but I'm sure many will remain skeptical, but I'll, so I'll leave it at that. Oh, and I really anyway. appreciate you laying the groundwork and the framework of basically uh, the conflict in Syria and when and why Iran uh, became involved in the conflict, because one of the main narratives coming from opposition or people that you know don't like Bashar al-Assad, who do uh, you know push that dictator narrative, will say that Iran entered Syria from the very beginning and they were massacring civilians. But the way that you uh, described it is exactly how we've reported it, which is there were true dissenting you know, protests that were taking place, but it was very soon infiltrated uh, with foreign fighters that were being armed and funded by Western nations, Gulf nations, uh, Turkey, and also by Israel. And so like, we can't <laughs> deny that that is that that happened. And so it's important to understand what the regional implications of the war in Syria uh, has. So Qasem Soleimani was leading this fight against Al-Qaeda, against ISIS. What was his legacy in fighting these terror groups that people who don't consume alternative media don't seem to understand? What is his true legacy? I think the most important thing that has to be remembered is that if it wasn't for General Soleimani, Syria would probably have fallen or would have, I think it was, it, it was not, 
probably, Syria would have fallen. And if Syria had fallen, Lebanon would have been devastated. And Jordan and even Turkey would have would not have been able to control the monster that they helped create. Uh, Mr. Erdogan would not have been able to control the situation. But also, if General Soleimani had not fought in Syria, Iraq would have fallen. Why? Because when ISIS entered Iraq, a lot of their forces remained in Syria because they were fighting in Syria. If they had taken Syria, they would have entered Iraq with their full force and they were speeding towards Baghdad. And it was only because, again, of General Suleiman and his men that ISIS was stopped at the gates of Baghdad. When Arbil, which is the Kurdish, the main Kurdish city in northern Iraq, was about to fall, Masoud Barazani, he contacted the Americans, he contacted the Europeans, he contacted everyone, he contacted everyone. They all said, we can't help. He contacted General Soleimani, General Soleimani within hours with a few of his own men went to Arbil and, uh, and um, um, began defending the city. So, and of course, pushed back ISIS and prevented the city from, from falling. So if it wasn't for him, Syria would have fallen, Damascus would have fallen, Beirut would have fallen, Baghdad would have fallen. It would have been a catastrophe, I think, that I mean, imagine what would have happened to the populations in these in, in these different countries. And as I said, it would have been something that even Mr. Erdogan and his his allies couldn't have controlled. The only country that would have benefited would have been Israel, the Israeli regime, because what the Israelis are, have always been looking for are weak and broken and fragmented neighbors so that they can maintain control over the region because they're having trouble enough as it is in subjugating uh, through their apartheid regime, the Palestinian population, which is just as large as the the, the colonizing uh, entity itself. So uh, I would say that without General Soleimani, the region would have collapsed and the Iranians would have had to fight ISIS and Al-Qaeda inside Iran. So there is both a, very, a strong element of morality involved in that the Iranians felt they had the moral responsibility to support the people of Syria, to support the people of Iraq and, and elsewhere. Just as the Hezbollah felt that same responsibility, and just as many people like yourself who were, who, who were being hammered by the mainstream media, who were being attacked by many for, for saying the truth, everyone felt that they had this responsibility. There was a very strong moral element here, but there was also another, uh, element as well, and that the Iranians knew that if they did not stop ISIS and Al-Qaeda and these groups in Syria and Iraq, they would have to fight them inside Iran. I was just about, so, to, I was just about to say that uh, part of uh, following Al-Qaeda's growth from and movement from Iraq into Syria was their plan to create this caliphate. <laughs> and part of their mission was uh, you know sect it was through sectarianism, and so they were targeting people who were Shia, who were religious minorities, and even Sunnis who were opposed to this kind of Salafist Wahhabi ideology. And so, um, from our understanding and even our reporting, 
taking quotes directly from these leaders within Al-Qaeda, within ISIS, they very clearly said while they were in Iraq that they were heading to Syria, they were heading to Lebanon, and they will be heading to uh, Iran to tear down those governments and to target uh, religious minorities to create this. And I think that's one really important aspect in the entire narrative that people you know, who are following this who you know who 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 attack Iran for getting involved in Syria don't truly understand the reason why because these groups were heading towards those countries uh, to create chaos and so that's exactly why uh, Soleimani was targeted in this assassination campaign and you mentioned that uh, the biggest bene- you know beneficiary of you know Syria Iran Lebanon and much of the greater Middle East to be fragmented would be countries like Israel, where the entire region is fragmented, there's civil war, there's sectarianism. While Israel, you know, while people are divided and conquered, Israel can maintain that hegemony uh, in the Middle East and also continue and expand its apartheid regime and occupation of Palestinian land. And so something that we reported on at MIT Press at the very beginning of this assassination was that Israel, through its Mossad and its intelligence uh, apparatus was actually, had actually attempted to assassinate Soleimani about a month prior to the successful assassination attempt by, or not attempt, successful assassination by the Trump administration. And so it is believed, you know, we could analyze and say that his assassination in Baghdad airport was a Mossad CIA uh, collaboration. Do you agree with this assessment? I think there's reason to believe that that was the case. Although General Soleimani traveled a lot and he wasn't actually hiding his movements, they were they were taking precautionary measures, of course, as much as possible. But when you're the commander in both Iraq and Syria and in multiple arenas, you're fighting these terrorist organizations, you have to move around a lot. And you're meeting leaders, you're meeting presidents, you're meeting counterparts. Uh, Obviously, there's going to be ample opportunity for uh, your enemies to discover your whereabouts. So it wasn't some great achievement by the Americans or Israelis, Mr. General Soleimani, as you pointed out at the beginning of the program, he was going to Baghdad to speak with the Iraqi prime minister. He was invited by the Iraqi prime minister to discuss a letter that the uh, the Saudis has, had sent in response to an Iranian letter to see if they could defuse tensions in the region. And of course, the Americans murdered him hours before that meeting. Yet the Americans were saying he went to Baghdad to, to create uh, to bring about some sort of attack on the United States. And of course, the Western media mimics whatever comes out of the White House as usual, as it is in the in the free world. But a point that I would like to um, add here is that uh, one of the perhaps most important things that the claims made about Iran uh, by its antagonists is, is sectarianism. Right. But I mentioned the city of Arbil, the, the Kurdish city. If, the, if it was sectarian, why would General Soleimani and his people, why would he personally, and, and along with his soul, uh, group of his soldiers, 
why would he personally go to the city to defend it? It was a Kurdish Sunni city, but he, he stood his ground when people were fleeing, when the Peshmergas were fleeing, he stood his ground. And with the remainder of the Peshmerga, the, the, the Revolutionary Guards pushed back ISIS. The same was true in when we look at Palestine, who is supporting the Palestinians? Which, which government in the, in the Islamic world or the Arab world is supporting the Palestinian cause in a sincere way? Which government has given the Palestinians the means to defend themselves? Not one, except for Iran. Are Palestinians Shia? They're Sunni. Or let me give you a more recent example, and that is the Taliban. These very liberals in Iran who were saying we were supporting the murder in Damascus, and then they changed their uh, narrative when ISIS entered Iraq because they were scared to death. Uh, these same people were, after the Taliban had taken over Afghanistan, they were calling on Iran, the government, these people in Iran, to wage war against the Taliban. And they were shaming the Iranian government and the guards for not waging war. Whereas Iran, the last thing that Afghanistan needs right now is another war or civil war. So the Iranians have been negotiating with the Taliban for a very long period of time to try to, 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 try to push them towards recognizing the Tajiks who are, more, who are largely Sunni, the Hezaras who are Shia, the Uzbeks who are Sunni, and to bring about a national consensus. And the Iranians are sending aid to Afghanistan right now, as the United States and the Europeans have sanctioned the country and push and are pushing the country, which is mostly Sunni, towards starvation. So while they're pushing the country towards starvation and their regional allies are doing nothing about it, it's the Iranians that are helping Afghanistan and are trying cooperating with the Taliban to prevent starvation in the country. So Iran's regional work, Iran's regional alliances, Iran's regional politics have nothing to do with sectarianism. They have to do with pushing back an imperial power, an hegemonic power that, that wants to retain its domination over the region to the detriment of the people of this region. So in, in Afghanistan, Iran prevents a civil war. In Iraq and Syria, Iran prevents ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Why? Because ISIS and Al-Qaeda were tools of NATO, just as they were tools of NATO in Libya. I mean, Iran had no presence in Libya. We saw what, they, what NATO did to Libya. We saw what NATO did in Afghanistan. The Americans, when they supported the groups that later became the Taliban, when they supported Al-Qaeda, in Afghanistan. So uh, you know, in this upside down world that the Western media and Western think tanks create, Western countries are the good guys, but they've caused nothing but death and destruction and devastation in this region for centuries. And the same is true in Latin America, the same is true in Africa. We all know that the ANC and Nelson Mandela they were terrorists. They were terrorists, according to U.S. law. Nelson Mandela was a terrorist, even when he became president. According to U.S. law, he was a president. He even when he was the president, according to U.S. law, he was a terrorist. He retired from politics, and he was still a terrorist, according to U.S. law. He was only his name was only removed in 2008. At a but Iran was supporting 
the ANC and Nelson Mandela when they were struggling against apartheid. So, you know, this upside down world, which the the Western media and think tanks uh, created, or this upside down narrative, is something that the you know these liberal elites in Iran and elsewhere they they mimic. But the reality is is almost the exact opposite at times. Absolutely, and you know, I'm so glad you talked about this a lot in in this conversation because Iranophobia is a real problem. It's a narrative that has been it's you know it's a caricature, a narrative of dehumanization of the Iranian people that was created by these think tanks that are funded by NATO that are funded. Um, by weapons manufacturers like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, um, and by some of the most neoconservative and even neoliberal politicians in this country, whose main goal is to occupy Iran for regime change, to get our you know, corporations to take over the industries in that country, like we do, as you said, to many of the countries in the global south. And that's exactly why Iran has been sanctioned for over 60 years it's the dehumanization of the Iranian people and their efforts to actually fight terrorism, um, which is why they're being targeted in this in this campaign. Um, I'm curious to know, um, you know, as we've you know as we've been discussing, you know, Soleimani and what Iran has been doing with other countries in the Middle East, you know. For instance, he was a key. He was key to negotiations and collaboration between Iran and Venezuela. Um, the former helping the latter with its electricity and energy crisis, um, also brought on by U.S. sanctions against Venezuela. So Iran, which has been sanctioned and completely devastated by U.S. sanctions for the past sixty years, has been a major ally and support system for countries like Venezuela. I just actually returned from Venezuela. And the people there were celebrating and showed so much gratitude to Venezuela, to, to Iran for their help. Um, and that's also part of the reason why the United States uh, kidnapped, uh, you know, Venezuelan ambassador Alex Saab while he was in travel and route to Iran to negotiate some fuel, some food and medicine aid to Venezuela. So can you tell us a bit about the Iranian partnership? with Venezuela and what Qasem Soleimani uh, did in, in those negotiations to combat U.S. sanctions in the global south. But specifically, I want to talk about Venezuela, and then we can talk about other countries. Well, before I speak about Venezuela, I'd also like to add that when eastern Aleppo was liberated, I was in western Aleppo, and Aleppo is, is a Sunni city. And I traveled around the city. I went to the campus multiple times, the university. It has a fantastic university and fantastic professors and wonderful students. And they were all supporting the Iranians. They were all grateful for the Iranian presence. When I, when the, uh, when Musel was liberated, I went to Musel with the Hashid, with the popular mobilization forces. I think we're among the first people to go to the uh, to the to the to the mosque where Abu Bakr al Baghdadi first declared his uh, Islamic state, and I I mingled with Hashid from uh, Sunni Hashid, Christian Hashid, and or you know popular mobilization people, 
and they were all, and, and I, I traveled with them, and they were all supportive of, they also set up General Soleimani as a hero. Latin America is the same when no one was supporting, just like when no one was supporting Syria and when no one was supporting Iraq, the Iranians were backing them. Just like when no one was supporting the Palestinians and when no one was supporting the Lebanese in the 2006 war, the Iranians supported them. The Iranians supported Venezuela when even more powerful countries were, were holding back. And again, the, these liberals in Iran were constantly criticizing the government, not because they could counter the logic. They couldn't counter the logic ultimately in Syria or Iraq. Uh, initially, they tried, but when it was becoming clear uh, what the, you know, that the logic was sound, they were saying, well, we, we don't have the money to support them. But in, rea but in reality, they, they understood that the, the, the reason why they were making these criticisms was because they understood that Iran had the moral high ground in supporting these different entities, whether it was Cuba or Venezuela or earlier on, as I said, South Africa or Syria or Iraq or Palestine or wherever, or, or in Afghanistan today. Uh, so in, in, in Venezuela, the Iranians began supporting the Venezuelan government because uh, the fall of the Venezuelan government would have created a, a, would have had devastating consequences for ordinary people, especially because U.S. supporters in Venezuela are, are, are vicious people. I mean, they are willing to have their country destroyed. They're willing to have the assets of their country confiscated and taken by a foreign power just to hurt their own country. That's the sort of people these are. These people. And we have these sort of people in Iran as well. The one uh, way those of Iran? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, we do. As, we, as, as you and I speak, these people are uh, hitting out at the Iranian negotiating team. They're hitting out at the Iranian government. They want to weak the, weaken the Iranian position at the negotiating table because they, they, want, uh, they want Iran to accept a bad deal or they just don't want any deal whatsoever. Right. Uh, but I can get into that a bit later when we when we get to Iran. But so uh, but as we speak, they're uh, they ridicule the no, the negotiating team or for example when western countries threaten Iran with taking Iran back to the UN Security Council, when people like myself say, well uh, the the UN Security Council the former UN Security Council sanctions they are they are very small in scope, and they're all already a part of the much larger Trump maximum pressure sanctions. So even if the UN they took it back to the UN, uh, nothing really would happen because those those smaller set of sanctions are already in place. So the West doesn't have leverage. When we say this, suddenly these liberals in Iran say that's outrageous. These people. In other words, they want to they want to spread fear among ordinary Iranians about what the Americans want to do, what the Europeans want to do, so that the that the Iranians will capitulate at the negotiating table. That's it's it. They're very similar to their Venezuelan counterparts. Right. Very oh. similar. So oh, so ahead. General Soleimani, just very briefly, he and of course the Iranians at, at, at in general 
were supporting the Venezuelans, not only for moral reasons, but also because the collapse of Venezuela would have been a, a major defeat for the resistance against empire across the board. It would have been a defeat for Iran. It would have been a defeat for the resistance because they, they are all a part of a broader resistance coalition. So again, Iran's support for Venezuela not only has very sound moral reasons behind it, but there are also major strategic reasons linked to this as well. And what was Qasem Soleimani negotiating and helping Venezuela before his assassinations? From my understanding that he was providing or actually maybe kind of creating a plan for Iran to help Venezuela with its electricity and energy crisis that was created by U.S. sanctions. Could you talk you know, in detail about that plan? I don't know much about the details and how much he was directly involved and what other uh, people were involved in these uh, negotiations and in this cooperation. But first of all, I have to point out that Venezuela helped Iran when the United States under Obama was imposing what Obama called brutal maximum pressure sanctions. The maximum pressure sanctions didn't begin with uh, Trump. They began with Obama. And at that time, Venezuela was helping Iran. Uh, the Venezuelan, the late uh, Hugo Chavez, was uh, was supporting Iran. So uh, the Iranians w- were supporting the Venezuelans just as the Venezuelans were uh, supporting Iran. And under the, the sanctions, during the sanctions, as the United States was trying to starve the Venezuelan people, and that's what the Americans and the Europeans do. They starve nations. If they can't have their hot wars, they, they starve people through sanctions. What they're doing with the Saudis in Yemen, the, this unprecedented genocide in, in contemporary human history, what, what's now happening in Afghanistan, what they do in Syria through the Caesars Act, Caesars Act, they punish the general population. They pretend that they're targeting governments, but we all know that they are intentionally targeting ordinary people. The maximum pressure sanctions against Iranians is intended to make people suffer. And again, one of the interesting things is that when you look at the narratives of these pro-Western liberals in Iran, you think it's the Iranians who have imposed these sanctions upon themselves. It's the the victim is being blamed. And we see we see the same thing in Venezuela. We see the same thing in Cuba. The same pro-Western elites, they, they play the same role across the board. So the Iranians were trying to help the Venezuelans survive. They were trying to help ordinary people survive because the Americans did not want ordinary people to have fuel and electricity. And the Iranians saw that as being completely inhumane. So the Iranians sent fuel to Venezuela. It sent engineers to Venezuela to help the country get through the the most difficult phase of the sanctions, just like what Iran is doing in Syria. When Iran sends fuel to Syria, what happens? The Israeli regime sometimes attacks the the Iranian ships. Why? Because, and and no one in the West complains about it. No one is worried about international shipping when it's Iranian ships taking fuel to Syria. Why? Because the EU wants the Syrian people to starve. They want to bring the people to their knees. They want people on their knees. They want the Yemenis on their knees. That's how they function. That's how they, that's how they 
dominate. But the world is changing. And we are seeing Western countries incapable of maintaining their centuries-old domination in these parts of the world. And I think that their, their power is slipping away faster than they think. Absolutely. And right now you are actually in Vienna um, attending the nuclear negotiations. Um, you know, within mainstream corporate media, just like you uh, just described, it's Iran that's being pointed at, at being difficult. When Iran, as we know, does not actually have any nuclear weapons, um, it is Israel. It's the largest um, arsenal of nuclear weapons in the Middle East actually exists in Israel. They're not a signatory on any sort of you know, nuclear negotiations. The United States is also, you know, has a huge stockpile of nuclear weapons. Yet Iran doesn't have any nuclear weapons, and yet they're continuously being pointed at as being difficult in these negotiations to be able to have, you know, nuclear capabilities for energy. So what is going on here with these negotiations? What kind of update can you give us about this? Well, as you rightly pointed out, the Israeli regime, which has supported ISIS and Al-Qaeda on its borders, on its occupied borders, because in the Golan Heights, Palestine is occupied, but in the Golan Heights, which belongs to Syria, but con- that is occupied by the Israeli regime, alongside the Golan Heights, the Israelis were supporting ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So they were supporting the extremists. They have been waging wars on neighboring countries. They've been subjugating their own native population. They bomb Syria regularly. They carry out terrorist attacks against Iranians. They bomb popular mobilization forces of Iraq on the border between Syria and Iraq. They constantly threaten Iran which is itself a violation of international law. And so do the Americans and so on. But yet they have nuclear weapons, but no one complains about it. Mm -hmm. But the Iranians, which were a victim of war, Saddam Hussein invaded Iran. Western countries gave him chemical weapons, the military intelligence to use them, and the political cover to get away with it for eight years, for six years. I think they began using chemical weapons after after two years, uh, two years into the war. I survived two chemical attacks. As we speak, my immediate family constantly reminds me to be extra careful about COVID because of, because of, the, because of my uh, chemical injuries, which are, which are mild in comparison to, to many. So Western countries gave Saddam Hussein weapons of mass destruction. And by the way, these very same Western elites and media, which you know, uh, shed crocodile tears over chemical weapons in Syria, and I'm sure you've covered this many times. The the, it, the the whole it was a false flag operation. These were false flag operations. There's ample evidence to show that uh, Aaron Mate, which is uh, who's also a friend of yours, has written extensively about this and that uh, those very same Wahhabi extremist groups carried out these false flag operations and then Western countries would bomb Syria. And the OPCW covered up 
the the facts that were provided by its own team that went to Syria, its its own technical experts that went to Syria. They were uh, they, they their evidence their statements were all cast aside, and uh, they created a false narrative to to suit Western demands. Yet. Yet these very same people who were talking about Syria all the time uh, and shedding crocodile tears, tears, the amount of chemical weapons that were used by Saddam Hussein is incomparable to anything used allegedly in Syria. Incomparable. In one attack, 6,500 people were massacred in the Kurdish city of Halabche, and nothing happened. I went to Halab just soon afterwards. Uh, the people were there, and, and Western media was taken there. Nothing, nothing happened. So Western governments, th- despite the fact that the Iranians were constantly being attacked with chemical weapons, they never acknowledge the fact, and they never remind their viewers, Western governments or Western media, uh, they never remind their people that despite being constantly attacked with chemical weapons, the Iranians refused to produce and use chemical weapons. Now the same is true. The Iranians have a peaceful nuclear program. There is no evidence that the Iranians ever at any point attempted to produce a nuclear weapon. Yet the Americans use this in order to put pressure on ordinary Iranians. And the and for, for, for many years, the Western media, Western governments were blaming the Iranian government the Iranian state, the Iranian administration, different administrations for for the sanctions because they would impose sanctions on Iran and they would say, well, negotiate. And the Iranians were saying, well, why should we negotiate? It's our sovereign right to have a nuclear program. But ultimately the Iranians did negotiate and they did agree to limit their their peaceful nuclear program. And thus we had the JCPOA, which you alluded to at the beginning of the program. But immediately after Iran signed that agreement, the previous administration, the United States violated that deal. Obama himself called, told his treasury not to, to, to threaten banks, not to cooperate with Iran. People from Italian banks once met me in Tehran and they, were, they told me this, this story themselves. They said, we want to work in Iran, but we can't because the, the state, the, the, the treasury department has threatened us. So Obama, from the very beginning, was violating the deal. The most important element of the deal, of the deal, because the banking sector sanctions is the most important part of the sanctions regime. So the United States violated the deal under Trump. The U.S. tore up the deal. But when you look at the, when you listen and look at the Western media, you think it's Iran's fault. Right now, as we speak, they're saying Iran should come back to the negotiating table. Whereas it was Iran that was implementing the deal when they were violating it. It was Iran that stayed in the deal when they tore up the deal. When Europe and the United States ended their uh, their, their limited implementation of their uh, obligations, because as I said, from the very beginning, they were violating the deal intentionally. When they began, when they ended the, the, re- the remainder of their commitments, the Iranians continued to abide by the deal for a full year. And then only gradually did they decrease their commitments within the framework of the deal, because the deal, according to Article 26 and Article 36 allows Iran to end its commitments, decrease its commitments when the other side is violating the deal. So one can argue that Iran is the only country that stayed at the table 
the Russians and the Chinese as well, because they tried to stay committed to the deal despite the sanctions. But now, when we watch the media, when we hear Western elites, it's they're 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 constantly threatening Iran, and what they want is for Iran to go back to 2015, but they want to keep many of the sanctions in place that were imposed after the deal was signed. So they want Iran to go back to 2015, but they don't want to go back to 2015 themselves. And when the Iranian negotiators want to be steadfast, you see again these elites in Iran, these liberal elites in Iran, mimicking their Western uh, overlords uh, and attacking the the Iranian uh, team for not immediately capitulating effectively. And uh, when they threaten Iran, as I said earlier, with, you know, we'll take you back to the UN Security Council, and the Iranians say, well, you, those sanctions, those UN sanctions, which are very limited in scope, are already being implemented through your maximum pressure campaign. These people get outraged. Why these, these you know, Iranian pro-Western liberals? Even though the logic is clear, the West doesn't have leverage, but they're constantly trying to help Western governments gain the upper hand against Iran. But the fact remains that the West doesn't have leverage. They've imposed maximum pressure against ordinary Irans. They've tried to make Iran suffer as much as possible. They have nothing more. And mili the military, their plan B is not an option. They know that if there's violence in this region, their allies in this region will be destroyed because they're, they would have to use their allies or the territory of their allies to attack Iran. And Iran is too powerful. The Iran is not Iraq. Iran is not Afghanistan. Right. So the only solution for Western countries is, and especially at a time when the United States has so many internal problems and when Russia and China is on the rise, the only realistic solution, reasonable solution, is for them to accept the JCPOA and to implement it in full. But they're still dragging their feet. Why? Because they just simply can't accept reality. So I want to make a couple of points here based on what you just said, because I've actually covered uh, the negotiations in the past and I've done several investigations about this very topic um, in the last, you know, you know, five years or so. Israel has been crying wolf about Iran being one week away, one month away, a couple days away from, you know, having the ability, you know, having the bomb ready, the bomb. And it's so ridiculous because actually we reported on um, leaked documents that came out of Israel's Mossad, its intelligence agency, where they actually admit amongst themselves, it was just a couple of years ago, and we can we can show this on the screen uh, during production, how uh, these documents actually showed that amongst themselves, they admitted that Iran has never created a bomb, nor is interest, interested in creating nuclear weapons. and is not even close to creating a nuclear weapon. They don't even have, they don't even have the capabilities <laughs> of creating nuclear weapons. Um, in fact, Iran's, uh, you know, scholars have released several fatwas showing that, you know, this is haram, you know, we can't, that they can't Islamically create uh, nuclear weapons. It goes against the faith. And so I just want to point, to, point that one thing out. The other thing is, um, my mind is kind of, going blank here, but oh, uh, you know, it's important to understand why Iran poses such a threat to 
the U.S. hegemony and other countries in the region like Israel and Saudi Arabia, who are now in, you know, very open, close, you know, trade relations, who are selling and buying weapons from each other and supporting each other in the war against Yemen and other conflicts like, like in Syria. You know, all people who follow Mint Press and our and our podcast and our investigations and reporting, they know about these things. But Iran is the has the largest gas reserves in the Middle East. It also has uh, is home to the most highly educated population in the entire region. There are more people graduating with PhDs in engineering and doctorate, you know, doctors, engineers uh, in Iran than any other country, I believe, in the world. Um, and then also, you know, be, you know, through U.S. sanctions, there was an, you know, an, an opposing effect where a working class revolution basically helped Iran become a superpower in uh, uh, constructing and uh, building industries to create their own cars, their own weapons, and many of the infrastructure that is building Iran today. So. These countries are very much afraid of the potential of Iran. And Iran also has, you know, more women in parliament than I think most Western countries, despite the, you know, anti-woman rhetoric that's being played with Iran. So Iran, the potential of Iran to be a superpower threatens and scares countries like Israel and Saudi Arabia and even the United States. And this is a major reason why Iran has been targeted through in Iranophobia Islamophobic sectarian campaign, and also why the United States would like to see regime change because that potential for Iran to be uh, that superpower, which it would, if those sanctions are removed, it would be a major superpower in the world, is terrifying to the one percent establishment class. Do you agree with that? I think one of the major issues that has to be remembered is that the revolution in Iran, the Islamic revolution. What was about of social justice, and it was anti-imperialist. And this is something these these issues, among other issues, indigenous values and so on. But th- these these I think are key issues. Uh, and one of the problems I think that Iran has is that. Uh, over the last couple of two, three decades, Iran has the, the, the different administrations gradually moved away from social justice. I think that under President Rafsanjani, under President Khatami, under President Ahmadinejad, even though he claimed otherwise, and under President Rouhani, the country gradually began to move away from social justice and more towards liberalism. And... Um, but the, the the one of the underlying slogans of the revolution itself it was social and is social justice, and the second is anti being anti hegemonic, and so for example one of the, the these pro Western liberals they try to attack Iran right now and say that Iran is in the Russian and Chinese camp which is which is nonsense Iran has good relations with Russia, it has good relations with China, it has good relations with all countries that want to have good relations with Iran. The Iranians tried to have good relations with the United States and the Europeans, thus the JCPOA. But these Western countries are unwilling to treat non-Western countries with dignity. 
They're unwilling to do that. They're unwilling to look at countries and people other than themselves as their equals. We have to be subordinate to them. And they can't accept that. Will the world change 10, 20, 30 years from now? Who knows? But that is the, the state of affairs as we see today. So Iran's fundamental problem with the United States is not the name of the country or the, the colors of the flag. It's U.S. policy. It's what the United States has done to our country, to our, our part of the world. Iran had very poor relations with the Soviet Union. And Iran was supporting the resistance in Afghanistan, not the extremist resistance that the Americans and the Saudis were supporting, but they were supporting the indigenous resistance in Afghanistan against the Soviet occupation. But when the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia became a very different country, Iran's relationship with that country evolved. If the United States were to change, the Iranians would redefine their relationship with the country. It has nothing to do with their religion. It has nothing to do with their race. It has to do with domination, hegemony, and and uh, the uh, you know, the 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 really despotic and, and ugly way in which the United States and the Europeans have, have treated the people of Iran and the people of this region and the people in the global South in general. But they don't want to see it that way. And, the, and since they don't have a logic to counter this logic, they demonize, they caricature, they they you know they use orientalist stereotypes. They're radical. They're extreme. They're they're crazy. They beat their women. They are, you know, they they're uh, despotic. So, uh, you know, Iran is always depicted as this. Uh, and it's also quite paradoxical because on the one hand, Iran is this growing menace that's a threat to the world. So you and the, you're sitting in the United States and we're that's, threatening you somehow. That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, we're corrupt and we are incompetent and we are hated by our own, you know, the people of Iran, well, if it's so weak and if it's falling apart, then how can it be simultaneously such a growing threat? But this, you know, because of this latent Orientalism and this latent knowledge, ordinary, many ordinary people can't see the, 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 the irresolvable paradox in, in these, in, that, that we see here. So, um, the, the, you know, the problem of Iran in, in the United in, in, in the United States in, in the Western media has to do with Iran's independence. And they do not care at all about ordinary Iranians. I mean, what just recently a Western journalist here in Vienna was telling me, you know, uh, and on, on television uh, on the BBC was saying, you know, speaking about human rights. Well, the, the greatest violation of Iranian human rights are the maximum pressure sanctions. How can Westerners speak about human rights when they're when they're trying to starve a nation? That's How can they point. speak about human rights in Syria or Venezuela or Cuba when they're trying to starve people? How can they speak about human rights when they're killing people in Yemen or in Afghanistan? So you know, I can we could we could go on, but the issue is not. Uh, human rights. The issue is not, um, you know, um, democracy. The issue is domination, subjugation, and the fact that Iran has created an a, an indigenous 
system, an indigenous uh, a, a constitution that 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 respects indigenous values, and that it has been effective despite sanctions, despite wars, despite huge hostility from the empire to stand its ground. This is what makes them so angry. Right. And the reason I wanted to bring up all of the successes of Iran from an economic point of view is to show that, yes, Iran is a major uh, fighter of anti-imperialism and setting the example by helping other countries. But there's also this huge potential of Iran to become a superpower, which really, really frightens those regional countries, because that would make, you know, that would just, that puts them basically back into their place. But really quickly, I would like to end our conversation about the current effects of U.S. sanctions in against Iran, um, considering, you know, we're still in the midst of the pandemic and the United States, there's no question that sanctions, their ma- the major agenda of sanctions, the end goal is starvation and to prevent essential medicines and supplies and humanitarian aid from reaching a population like we've seen in Yemen, like we've seen in you know, Cuba and Venezuela. And Iran, the United States has actually blocked syringes, uh, vaccines <laughs> from reaching people in Iran. How are people surviving the pandemic? I'm considering, you know, Iran's, you know, Iran's health infrastructure. Is it able to support people that have COVID who have some of the, you know, more intense uh, symptoms amid the sanctions? Like what is the current state of U.S. sanctions against Iran and how is Iran surviving that from a medical perspective? It's been very tough. But I would say that Iran has been much more successful than any of the other countries targeted by the United States. And that, for example, when COVID first struck Iran, uh, the Americans and the Europeans blocked Iran from importing even masks or test kits or ventilators. So Iran began producing them. Why? Because Iran had the indigenous capability to do so. And uh, of course, liberals in Iran, again, these pro-Western liberals attack Iran day and night. They, they actually uh, blame the victim and they're calling on, they basically want Iran to capitulate to the United States and for Iran to accept their terms, even though Iran already signed the JCPOA and Western countries are not abiding by it. And if Iran was to somehow capitulate, and it won't, to the United States and the Europeans, that's not going to end their hostility. If they feel that Iran is weak, if they feel that Iran is on the defensive, they'll only demand more and more concessions from Iran. But despite the fact that uh, the the American allies in Iran, Western allies in Iran are trying to demoralize the population, despite the fact that the, the Persian media, they have a huge apparatus, the Europeans and the Americans, anti-Iranian apparatus, Persian, BBC Persian, VOA Persian, Deutsche Welle Persian, all these websites, they have thousands of, uh, they have an online army uh, with thousands of people, you know, tweeting and on Facebook and on Instagram, day and night hammering Iran. So they have this huge network 
both outside Iran and sadly inside Iran, uh, this sort of loose coalition of people. I'm not saying that the people inside Iran are, are open allies of those outside Iran, but you can you when you look carefully, you see a, a lot of overlap. Despite this attempt to demoralize the country, the Iranians uh, have uh, been able to be steadfast and to they have the, the, the ability to force the Europeans and the Americans to sit at the negotiating table. And even though the Americans and the Europeans are constantly threatening the Iranian negotiators at the nuclear at the nuclear negotiating saying, nuclear negotiations, saying that time is running out, or or we're going, we may take it to the UN Security Council. The Iranians have been steadfast and said, look, we signed a deal, you have to implement it. So while they try to target ordinary Iranians, and while they do try to target ordinary Iranians, and they're effective in targeting ordinary Iranians, sometimes key medicine is is not available. Why? Because that medicine that's produced in Iran, sometimes the, the materials that is needed to, to, to produce that medicine can't be purchased in time because they couldn't get the money uh, to that company in time. Or sometimes the key medicine that is imported is not available because Iran has to purchase that medicine through alternative means. They can't use the banking sector. Or many companies will not work with Iran. Or many companies will take Iranian money and will, they will not give the medicine or the supplies. That's happened a lot to Iran. So despite all these, so you see people die as a result. But despite all that, the Iranians have been able to, uh, to, to, to remain steadfast, to stabilize the economy. And while the BBC Persian and the Saudi TV, the Saudi, it's called Iran International, but it's, it's Mohammed bin Salman's uh, his mercenaries working there. While all these TV channels and online armies are set, are telling Iranians that the, you're the you're the most miserable people on this planet, uh, I I think that for people like yourself who who've been around, uh, it's quite obvious that Iran is is doing a lot better than many of the many of the countries that are actually in the U.S. camp. But hopefully, the hope is that through Iran's resistance and resilience, the sanctions regime will collapse and the United States and the Europeans will be forced to uh, accept uh, the, implement, the full implementation of uh, the nuclear deal. And as you rightly pointed out, Iran never intended to develop a nuclear weapon. If Iran wanted to have a nuclear weapon, they would have had it a long time ago. Right. Iran is a country which sends satellites into space. Iran is a country which is one of the top countries in nanotechnology in the world in stem cell research. Iran is 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 highly developed in in uh, in many uh, of the key technologies. It would have easily been able to develop a nuclear weapon, but just as it never developed chemical weapons, even though it was a victim of chemical weapons, Iran has never went moved towards uh, developing a nuclear weapon. But Iran knows that it cannot give up its rights. To a nuclear program because that's a part of the country's sovereignty. Just as your borders constitute protecting your borders is a part of your sovereignty, so are your rights as a as a sovereign and independent state. It's quite incredible how Iran has been able to, you know, serve not only survive <laughs> these sanctions but uh, do it through resiliency and become this powerhouse of education and technology and infrastructure and industries, despite uh, the attacks that it faces every single day. Um, 
including the attacks against its nuclear scientists and its leaders and this push for regime change and being surrounded by U.S. military bases. Um, and so I really appreciate you coming on today, Dr. Morandi. Um, so please let our listeners know where they can find your work and how they can follow you, and then we should be done after that. Well, my uh, Facebook account was deleted a long time ago. My Instagram account was deleted a long time ago. I still have a Twitter account. For the, <laughs> yes, I still have a Twitter account, which uh, I'm constantly attacked and harassed. Uh, so uh, apparently that's not even tolerated nowadays. I'm, I'm, I teach at the University of Tehran. I do have a Twitter account and uh, which uh, I don't know if you could put on the screen. I would like you to lay, later on add a photo of General Soleimani on Newsweek, because at the beginning of the show, you, you spoke about how the Western media changed their narrative on him. There is a very uh, well-known uh, picture of him on the cover of Newsweek, uh, where this, uh, where it says he's crushing ISIS. So the person who actually crushed ISIS was murdered by the United States. Thank you so much, Dr. Murray. We will do that. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me.